1925, great Pope Pius XI decided to institute a new feast, Feast of Christ the King. His encyclical, Quas Prima, instituting that new feast, the Holy Father explained not just the reason for that particular feast, but more generally how it is that over the course of time, the Church herself erects new feasts. Pius XI, quote, History, in fact, tells us that in the course of ages, these festivals have been instituted one after another according as the needs or the advantage of the people of Christ seem to demand. As when they needed strength to face a common danger, when they were attacked by insidious heresies, when they needed to be urged to the pious consideration of some mystery of faith or of some divine blessing. For example, when reverence and devotion to the Blessed Sacrament had grown cold, the Feast of Corpus Christi was instituted, so that by means of psalm processions and prayer of eight days' duration, men might be brought once more to render public homage to Christ. So, too, the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus was instituted at a time when men were oppressed by the sad and gloomy severity of Jansenism, which had made their hearts grow cold, and shut them out from the love of God and the hope of salvation. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. Okay, so over the course of the ages, new feasts instituted according to the needs of the faithful to strengthen them, to face a danger, protect them from heresy, encourage them to consider a mystery of the faith or divine blessing. And the Pope explicitly mentioned the Feast of Corpus Christi and Sacred Heart, both of which were instituted in response to private revelation. Let's take a really brief look at the institution of each of those feasts. In the early 13th century, our Lord appeared to an Augustinian nun in Belgium, St. Juliana of Liege, and he told her of his desire that the Feast of Corpus Christi be established, precisely because the reverence and devotion of the faithful towards the most blessed sacrament had grown cold. Over the course of time, Juliana, St. Juliana, mentioned our Lord's request to some members of the clergy, including a Father James Pontelion. Now, as divine providence would have it, Father James Pontelion went on to other things. He became Pope Urban IV. And so in 1264, he instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi. What about the Feast of the Sacred Heart? In the 17th century, a terrible heresy known as Jansenism broke out. We don't have time to go through all the details, although they're very interesting. But Jansenism is like Calvinism, except inside the church. God is not seen as a loving father, but basically like someone just waiting to slam dunk people down into hell. The Jansenists promoted a stripped-down liturgy that would be done in the vernacular. They wanted to get rid of side altars, get rid of all the church artwork, popular devotions, and so forth. Uh, in terms of, of morality, the Jansenist confessors were over-the-top uh, rigorous with their penitents. And since you needed, in those days, your confessor's permission to go to communion, unless it, basically a penitent was a great saint, they very well might not be allowed to go to communion. This is why the little flower, for example, 
wouldn't get permission from her confessor to go to communion. I mean, you can imagine that. The little flower. No, you can't go. She, she couldn't go to daily communion. I mean, good heavens. This is the sort of situation. I read a, uh, I once read a, a translation of a letter written by a priest who's obviously under the influence of Jansenism. He, this, this is a letter written to, by the priest to a bishop. And he's bragging that he had not, there had not been one singular sacrilegious communion in his parish at midnight mass. Well, I mean, that's, that sounds great. Who wants a sacrilegious communion? But then when you read why there wasn't one, it's unbelievable. And the reason there weren't any sacrilegious communions at midnight mass is he never put the key in the tabernacle. Nobody got to go to communion. Well, mission accomplished. If you want to make sure there's no sacrilegious communions, you just don't give anybody communion, and then it's done. This is Jansenism. Okay, so you have this situation. There's problems in the realm of grace and so forth. Anyway, in response to all that, as everybody knows, our Lord appears to a visitation nun, St. Margaret Mary, and he's holding out his sacred heart, crowned with thorns. He says, Behold the heart that has loved man so much, sparing nothing, even to the point of exhausting and consuming itself in order to testify to its love. And in return, I receive from the greater part only ingratitude, irreverence, sacrilege, and coldness and contempt for me in this sacrament of love. He asked that the Feast of the Sacred Heart be celebrated on the Friday after the octave or the eighth day of the Feast of Corpus Christi, which is now the case throughout the Church. So over the course of the ages, new feasts have been instituted according to the needs of the faithful to strengthen them in the face of danger, protect them against heresy, encourage them to consider a mystery of the faith or a divine blessing. Today's feast is no exception to that. In fact, during the courses of his appearances to St. Faustina, our Lord made it very clear why he wished this feast to be established. And as was the case with the Feast of the Sacred Heart, he also specified the precise day on the church calendar when he wanted this feast to be celebrated. So let's take a brief look at the history behind today's feast before we consider the messages of our Lord. For the most part, besides relying on the diary of, of St. Faustina, we'll, uh, we'll draw on information taken from the Marians, the Immaculate Conception, and a very interesting pamphlet by uh, Dr. Robert Stackpole. St. Faustina was born to a poor family in Poland in 1905. She got about three years of formal education. She first felt a calling to the convent at the age of seven, so by the time she was in her middle teens, she asked her parents on two separate occasions for permission to enter the convent. But both times, they refused. In the summer of 1924, she's 19 years old, and she and her sister went to a dance. At the dance, she suddenly had a vision of our Lord suffering. So she left the dance. Obviously, you wouldn't feel like dancing after something like that. She left the dance and went right to church. While she was praying in church, she was told by our Lord to leave for Warsaw immediately and enter a convent. So that night she packed a small bag, and in the morning, without the permission of her parents, she took a train for Warsaw. It was 130 miles away. 
where she knew not a single soul. So when she arrived in Warsaw, she just entered the first church she saw and asked the priest what she ought to do. He recommended that she stay with a lady known to him until she could find a convent that would accept her. She went around. She was refused entry by a number of convents until finally the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy decided to give her a chance. After entering, she was given the humblest tasks in the convent, usually cooking, cleaning, or gardening. On February 22nd, 1931, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ appeared to St. Faustina. She describes the scene, and I quote, In the evening, when I was in my cell, I became aware of the Lord Jesus clothed in a white garment. One hand was raised in blessing, the other was touching the garment at the breast. From the opening of the garment at the breast, there came forth two large rays, one red and the other pale. In silence, I gazed intently at the Lord. My soul was overwhelmed with fear, but also with great joy. After a while, Jesus said to me, Paint an image according to the pattern you see with the inscription, Jesus, I trust in you. Sometime later, our Lord again spoke to her. The pale ray stands for the water, which makes souls righteous. The red ray stands for the blood, which is life of souls. These two rays issued forth from the depths of my most tender mercy at that time when my agonizing heart was opened by a lance on the cross. Right here, before we go any farther, we can see in the epistle today, in St. John's epistle, he's writing about the water and the blood. And, of course, in the gospel about the opening in our Lord's side. St. Faustina recorded the message from our Lord in notebooks, and they're now known as her diary. In her diary, St. Faustina predicted that her work would be suppressed for some time and then accepted again. She died in 1938, and two decades later, the Divine Mercy devotion was indeed banned by the Vatican. It had been going for uh, over 20 years. In 1965, Archbishop of Krakow, Karol Wojtyla, opened a new investigation, interviewed witnesses, and in 67 submitted a number of documents about St. Faustina of the Vatican, requesting the start of the process of her beatification. So the case was accepted for review in 1968. In 1977, Cardinal Wojtyla asked the Vatican to review and lift the ban on the Divine Mercy devotion. In April of 78, the prefect of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith lifted the ban and stated that misunderstandings had been created because they had been relying on a faulty Italian translation of Sister Faustina's diary. As everyone knows, six months later, in October of 1978, Cardinal Wojtyla was elected Pope. In April 2000, St. Faustina became the first saint canonized in this century. And all that by way of background. As we start off by seeing that the church institutes new feasts according to the needs of the faithful, strengthen them in the face of danger, protect them against heresy, encourage them to consider a mystery of the faith or a divine blessing. So the question is, why in this day and age would Christ our Lord emphasize the doctrine of divine mercy? The answer might surprise you. Both Our Lord and Our Lady speak to St. Faustine about this precise question. I'll just quote from various passages uh, sprinkled here and there throughout her diary. So what reason did Our Lord give for emphasizing divine mercy? 
and for establishing this feast. Quote, Before the day of justice, I am sending the day of mercy. Tell souls about this great mercy of mine, because the awful day, the day of my justice, is near. You will prepare the world for my final coming. Speak to the world about my mercy. It is a sign for the end times. After it will come the day of justice. While there is still time, let them have recourse to the fountain of my mercy. I am prolonging the time of mercy for the sake of sinners. But woe to them if they do not recognize this time of my visitation. He who refuses to pass through the door of my mercy must pass through the door of my justice. Close quotes, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our Lady also spoke to St. Faustine about this. Quote, Oh, how pleasing to God is a soul that follows faithfully the inspirations of his grace. I gave the Savior to the world. As for you, you have to speak to the world about his great mercy and prepare the world for the second coming of him who will come not as a merciful Savior, but as a just judge. Oh, how terrible is that day. Determined is the day of justice, the day of divine wrath. The angels tremble before it. Speak to souls about this great mercy while there is still the time for granting mercy. If you keep silent now, you'll be answering for a great number of souls on that terrible day. Close quote, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay, so as we've seen, the church institutes new feasts according to the needs of the faithful to strengthen them in the face of danger, protect them against heresy, encourage them to consider a mystery of faith or divine blessing. And we've been considering the question, why in this, in, in this day and age would Christ our Lord emphasize the doctrine of divine mercy? And the answer is, both to remind us of and prepare us for that terrible day, that day of anger and wrath, when he will come in the clouds of glory with all his angels to judge the living and the dead. This world is grinding to an end, and we don't want to be caught out, rounded up with the goats, screaming for the mountains to cover us. There's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Right now is the time of mercy. As our Lord says, before the day of justice, I'm sending the day of mercy. I'm prolonging the time of mercy for the sake of sinners. But woe to them if they do not recognize this, the time of my visitation. The awful day, the day of my justice, is near. He refuses to pass the door of my mercy, must pass the door of my justice. Let's turn to the feast itself.
Our Lord told St. Faustina, quote, My daughter, tell the whole world about my inconceivable mercy. I desire that the Feast of Mercy be a refuge and a shelter for all souls, and especially for poor sinners. On that day, the very depths of my tender mercy are open. I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the font of my mercy. The soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. On that day, all the divine floodgates through which grace flow are opened. Let no soul fear to draw near to me, even though its sins be as scarlet. My mercy is so great that no mind, be it of man or of angel, will be able to fathom it through all eternity. The Feast of Mercy has emerged from my merry depths of tenderness. It is my desire that be solemnly celebrated on the first Sunday after Easter. Mankind will not have peace until it turns to the font of my mercy. Close quote, our Lord. A 500-page theological analysis, it's the most uh, in-depth analysis uh, written up to this point, of the graces of the Feast of Divine Mercy was done by Father Ignacy Rosicki, STD. He's a, a Polish domestic uh, theologian. He did it as part of the official investigation into Sister Faustina's life and virtues by the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. I'll just quote one small excerpt from that. Father Rosicki, quote, In this matter, four points are beyond all doubt. A. The special grace was promised in the context of the Feast of Mercy. B. It was directly attached to receiving Holy Communion on this day. C. It consists in the total remission of sins and punishment. D. It is theologically possible. Close quote. Well, that bears repeating. In this matter, there are four points beyond all doubt. A, the special grace was promised in the context of the Feast of Mercy. B, it was directly attached to receiving Holy Communion on this day. C, it consists in the total remission of sins and punishment. D, it is theologically possible. In a 1981 symposium, Father Roziki commented, quote, the most exceptional grace promised by Jesus for the Feast of the Divine Mercy is something considerably greater than a plenary indulgence. The latter consists only of the remission of temporal punishments for committed sins, but is never the remission of sins itself. The exceptional grace of the Communion on Divine Mercy Sunday is also greater than the graces of the other sacraments, with the exception of the sacrament of baptism. For the remission of all sins and punishment is found only in the sacramental grace of baptism. In the promises cited, Christ tied the remission of all sins and punishment to the reception of Holy Communion on the Feast of Divine Mercy. In other words, in this regard, he raised it to the rank of a second baptism. He has that in quotes. By this uh, second baptism, Father means a renewal of grace in the soul uh, coming from the worthy reception of Holy Communion, and that this renewal is like that that results from the reception of the sacrament of baptism. Ordinarily, uh, the reception of the Eucharist in the state of grace only remits venial sin and strengthens the soul against both venial and mortal sin. Uh, 
But according to our Lord's words to St. Faustina on the Feast of Divine Mercy, worthy reception of Holy Communion affects in the soul a complete renewal of baptismal grace. Uh, back to Father Roziki. It is obvious that in order to effect a complete forgiveness of sins and punishment, the Holy Communion received on the Feast of Divine Mercy must not only be part and taken of worthily, worthy communion. You can't go to communion unless you're in a state of grace. Communion is not a magic trick. This is something where you're worthily receiving communion. On this day, Christ our Lord has attached more graces to the worthy reception of communion. It's not substitute for confession. Okay, so the the communion received on the Feast of Divine Mercy must not only be partaken of worthily, but it must also fulfill the basic requirements of the Divine Mercy devotion. However, received unworthily, without trust in divine mercy, and devoid of some deed of mercy toward neighbor, it would be a contradiction of devotion to divine mercy. Instead of the exceptional grace, it would be bring down upon the recipient the divine wrath. Every bad communion does that. And I said this in the last Mass, I'll repeat myself here. Don't worry about what you've heard, perhaps, from other priests. There are some very confused people out there, and we're not exempt from it on matters of the faith, unfortunately. If you have a mortal sin, you go to confession before you go to communion. Don't worry about it. We'll be here. We'll get you taken care of. I'm not saying everybody going to confession has a mortal sin. Hopefully, the idea is you go to confession before you need to go to confession, so you don't need to go to confession. That's how we want to do it. But if someone falls into mortal sin, good heavens, go to confession before you go to communion, don't pile it out of yourself down about three layers into hell. You've got to go to confession first. If you heard something else elsewhere, ignore it. Doubts, look it up in the Council of Trent. That's a topic for another sermon, but this is infallible teaching of church. You've got to go to confession before you go to communion. Okay, so the special grace granted on the Feast of Divine Mercy is directly attached to receiving Holy Communion on this day. It consists in the total remission of sins and punishment, and it's considerably greater than a plenary indulgence and a whole lot easier to gain. Why does this feast fall on the octave of Easter? Well, you can look at the readings. I mean, besides the fact our Lord wanted it, but there's other things. In his sermon for Low Sunday, that's this very day on the liturgical calendar, St. Augustine called the Easter octave, quote, the days of mercy and pardon, close quote, and he called today the octave day, quote, the compendium of the days of mercy. Close quote, St. Augustine, bishop, doctor, and father of the church. Father Roziki makes another important point, quote, Our Lord insists that one receive Holy Communion worthily on the day of the feast itself. By this requirement, he incorporates the devotion into the sacramental life of the church because the end of the ordinary period for making Easter communion falls on that Sunday. Close quote. Okay, so what about confession? Does that have to be made on the Feast of Divine Mercy? Well, certainly before one goes to communion, if he has mortal sin on his soul, as we just said, got to go to confession first. If you heard something else, just take out the brain eraser and get rid of that. Okay? That's the only case, though. As one commentator notes, quote, Christ never specifically asked for the faithful to go to confession on the day of the feast itself. Practically speaking, that would be an impossible burden on most pastors. In fact, St. Faustina herself 
made her confession on the Saturday before Mercy Sunday. Whenever times of confession may be offered, the important thing is for the faithful to be encouraged to come to Mercy Sunday in a state of grace, having confessed all mortal sins and trusting in the mercy of God. Close quote. Is there anything else we ought to do? Yes. Our Lord said to St. Faustina, quote, The first Sunday after Easter is the Feast of Mercy, but there must also be acts of mercy. I demand from you deeds of mercy which are to rise out of love for me. You are to show mercy to your neighbors always and everywhere. You must not shrink from this or try to excuse or absolve yourself from it. I am giving you three ways of exercising mercy toward your neighbor. The first by deed, the second by word, the third by prayer. In these three degrees is contained the fullness of mercy and is an unquestionable proof of love for me. By this means a soul glorifies and pays reverence to my mercy. Even the strongest faith is of no avail without works. Close quote, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, what about the plenary indulgence? In a decree dated August 3, 2002, the Apostolic Penitentiary announced, quote, the plenary indulgence is granted under the usual conditions. Now, the usual conditions are uh, sacramental confession, Eucharistic communion, prayers, and intentions of the Supreme Pontiff. So the plenary indulgence is granted under the usual conditions to the faithful who on the second Sunday of Easter, or Divine Mercy Sunday, in any church or chapel, in a spirit that is completely detached from the affection for a sin, even a venial sin, take part in the prayers and devotions held in honor and divine mercy, or who in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament exposed or reserved in the tabernacle recite the Our Father and the Creed, adding a devout prayer to the merciful Lord Jesus. For example, merciful Jesus, I trust in you. Okay. So today, every one of us should strive to do two things. First, make as devout a Holy Communion as possible, with as great a trust in the divine mercy as possible, in order to receive the greatest possible grace from the feast. Our Lord, I have opened my heart as a living fountain of mercy. Let all souls draw life from it. Let them approach this sea of mercy with great trust. The more a soul trusts, the more it will receive, close quote. So that's the first, a very pious communion. Second, each one of us should try to obtain the indulgence and then offer it up for the poor soul most in need, which in itself would be an immense act of mercy. To that end, uh, during for our Thanksgiving after Mass, uh, I'll leave the chaplet and then we'll pray for the Holy Father's intentions. Okay, let's review. What have we seen? We've seen that over the course of the ages, new feasts have been instituted according to the needs of the faithful. We've seen that the reason why Christ our Lord chose to emphasize the doctrine of divine mercy in our day and age is to remind us that this is the time for mercy, that he did not come down on earth with a sword of justice and the flames of divine wrath. He's here to remind us that he came on a mission of love. He came to suffer and to die for us, that he knows our weaknesses, and he longs to forgive us, to strengthen us, and to heal us. But he also doesn't want us to forget that there's a day coming 
that terrible day of anger and wrath when he will come to judge living and dead, and he wants us to be prepared. He wants us all to receive his mercy now before it's too late. We've seen that he's attached to special grace. We really call it an incredible grace directly to the reception of Holy Communion today. We've seen this grace as a total remission of sins and punishment. We've seen that our Lord picked a feast day that was traditionally seen as the last day of the ordinary period to make the Easter Communion, that St. Augustine called this Sunday the Compendium of the Days of Mercy, and that it's very fitting, just by looking at the image, we can see the fittingness with the readings. We've seen that our Lord also insists that we must do deeds of mercy out of love for him. We've seen that the Pope has granted plenary indulgence under usual conditions to the faithful, who with a spirit that is completely detached from affection to sin, even venial sin, take part in the prayers and devotions held in any church or chapel in honor of divine mercy today. We've seen that each one of us should strive to do two things. First, to make as devout a Holy Communion as possible, with as great a trust in the divine mercy as possible, in order to receive the greatest possible grace from the feast. And second, that each of us should strive to receive the plenary indulgence and then offer it up for the poor soul most in need, which is already an immense act of mercy that we can all strive for today. Let's close with remarks made by our Lord to St. Faustina. My great delight is to unite myself to souls. When I come to a human heart in Holy Communion, my hands are full of all kinds of graces which I want to give to the soul. But souls do not even pay any attention to me. They leave me to myself and busy themselves with other things. How sad I am that souls do not recognize love. They treat me as a dead object. I desire that the Feast of Mercy be a refuge and a shelter for all souls, and especially for poor sinners. On that day, the very depths of my tender mercy are open. I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the font of my mercy. The soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. On that day, all the divine floodgates through which grace flow are opened. Let no soul fear to draw near to me, even though its sins be as scarlet. The more a soul trusts, the more it will receive. I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the font of my mercy. The soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. The more soul trusts, the more it will receive.